Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for God's glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of God's name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of divine holiness. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. The Lord makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. The Lord makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forests bare. In God's temple, everyone shouts glory. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. The Lord gives God's people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. Tommy is going to read from Luke 8 for us. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly, the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, Where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and waves obey him. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Callum. So friends, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, we have for this year been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we are in chapter 8, and we are calling it the spicy gospel because Jesus says some spicy things and does some spicy things. I want to start, in fact, with Jesus's context today. Odysseus and his men were caught between a rock and a hard place. For decades, they've been trying to get home after the battle of Troy, and at each step, they were thwarted by gods and demons and misfortune. They'd been nearly eaten by the Cyclops. I'm going to have to have you all control it up there. They had been nearly eaten by the Cyclops, ensnared by the sirens, and they'd even been recently turned into pigs. And now, they're about to sail past Scylla and Charybdis. Like our saying, caught between a rock and a hard place, for Greek sailors to say we are caught between Scylla and Charybdis was to say essentially that we have no good options. Skyla was an immortal female monster, note female, 
an immortal female monster associated with the cliffs and the caves along the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea. She had 12 feet and six heads, and her mouth had layers of teeth designed specifically to consume sailors whose ships came too close. Across the strait on the opposite shore was Charybdis. Charybdis was cursed by Zeus and was forced three times a day to swallow all the water in the region only to immediately belch it back out, which created dangerous whirlpools that threatened entire ships. And so for Odysseus and his fellow sailors to survive these two monsters, they needed divine wisdom. And the goddess Circe offered it. Instead of navigating between the monsters as most people tried to do and failed, Circe recommended instead that they choose. Circe said that she would encourage them to choose to try to make it past Skyla. Charybdis would destroy the entire ship. Skyla would probably only kill a handful of crew members. And so Odysseus, who was not a god, Odysseus, who was not a god, knew that he could not save himself and he could not save his men. He needed to rely on divine wisdom. Between a rock and a hard place, he listened to that wisdom and he chose Skyla, sacrificing six of his men rather than losing the entire ship and everyone on board. It may not seem immediately obvious, but I think it is, there are bits of this story from Greek mythology that help us understand something about Luke 8 and what Luke 8 is trying to say and do in our lives. For example, you'll notice that the Greek story of Skyla and Charybdis functions as a parable. Now, let me say this. I, I am not a classics scholar. I don't know the reception history of ancient Greek mythology. I don't know if the ancient Greeks understood those stories to be literal or not, or if they just saw them all as parables. But I do know that at the very least, they understood these stories to be parables teaching them wisdom. In this case, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, don't try to navigate both, which will surely kill you. Rather, choose the one you can live with. Similarly, many scholars and commentators and pastors and who preach on Luke chapter 8 have questioned whether the calming of the storm narrative is a historical narrative. More liberal scholars have said, no, no, it probably isn't. Obviously, miracles don't happen, right? More conservative scholars have said, no, no, like there's good reason to say that this is a historical event. And so a lot of the focus in commentaries and scholarship will go on whether we should understand this story to be literal history, a literal biographical part of Jesus' uh, 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 life or not. And what I would like to say this morning in typical Methodist fashion is that it doesn't matter. It misses the point to even ask the question. 
Let me back up. I believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead in a physical body. So miracles are not outside of my understanding of the world. But because of that, I also don't need every miracle story to have been a historical event in order for me to understand the point. Because the point of this is not whether it is a historical event. That misses the wisdom of the story when we focus on that. I like to refer to stories like this as lived parables. It is not necessarily a made-up story, but neither is it mere biography or history. Stories like this are parables that happened, which means like Scylla and Charybdis, if we want to understand the wisdom of this story, we need to dive into it and ask the right questions, which begins by understanding that this story was not written for us. Luke did not sit down and say, you know, I think I would like to write this story for 21st century Americans whom I don't even know exist, who speak English. Luke is writing this for a non-Western, Mediterranean, brown-skinned audience of people who were historically Gentiles and therefore historically polytheists. That is, they believed in multiple gods. That information is essential to understanding what Luke is doing in this story. Notice, for example, that the, uh, to, 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 to begin to explore this with non-Western eyes, notice, for example, that the treacherous waters, Scylla and Charybdis, are demon-like this, there we go, are demon-like monstrous forces, and might I even point out that they're female ones. Now, if you listen to modern preachers, you read modern theologians, usually white men coming from the Western Hemisphere, they'll say something like this. The calming of the storm is a nature miracle that proves that Jesus has power over nature. And the next story, which you, we will encounter next week, is a supernatural miracle where Jesus casts out demons. It demonstrates Jesus' power over the supernatural world. And so a lot of Western theologians will say something like, the two stories butted up next to each other are supposed to design to show that God has power over nature and God has power over the supernatural. But this distinction between the natural and the supernatural is a completely Western distinction. Because in the ancient world, to the ancient Gentiles, nature was divine. 
And the divine was tied to nature. There was no real distinction between the physical and the spiritual world. There was no distinction between the natural and the supernatural world. Luke's audience were Gentiles who believed that nature was imbued with the divine and the divine was revealed in nature. And the sea gods, those darn women, were moody and unpredictable like the sea. You can see how it's pretty misogynistic. You could see how it would result in the subjugation of women. Now here's what's really interesting. It's not just the Greek gods. Israel's Babylonian neighbors before them believed that the world was created when a female sea goddess who was moody and temperamental, who needed male violence to keep her in check, the world was created in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Babylonian creation story, by a male deity ripping apart the body of the sea goddess. The world was literally created by male against female violence. This is the way the world works in this worldview. Now, here's what's really interesting the Bible picks up on those themes over and over, and you know it but I wonder if you've ever slowed down to notice it. I want you to notice in the stories I'm about to remind you of, I want you to notice a couple of things. A, Israel's God does not have a gender. B, they are completely nonviolent. And C, it does not take military force but a mere word to split the sea. In the Genesis 1 creation story, part of the creation narrative is in day two, the body of water called the sea is split in two. Every ancient Jew living in Babylon would have recognized exactly what was happening there, only instead of violence, it was through a divine word. Only instead of the sea being a tempestuous, moody woman, it is created by God and a part of God's good creation. Or I wonder if you remember when Israel is leaving Egypt, the sea stands in their way. And what happens? It is split in two. See, the sea in the ancient world is never just the sea in some Western biological or chemical sense. It's not just a bunch of H2O with some too much salt in it. 
The sea in the ancient world is a raging, unpredictable force, most often in the pagan worldview associated with women, but even outside of that, it is a demon or a deity or a force that threatens creation with chaos and destruction. Our supernatural versus natural categories obscure all of this force and chaos. Luke never will say that the sea is a god because Luke only has one god, but the sea is still a force of destruction and chaos. To, to, to divide that into some kind of idea of natural or supernatural misses the point because this is less a nature miracle and it is more an exorcism. It is an exorcism like we are going to see next week when Jesus casts out demons and throws the demons into pigs. In other words... This story is the story of our God resisting evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, be it on land or on sea. It is a story about how evil in this world is tied to but cannot be limited by human behavior. Some evil, it turns out, is actually beyond human control and is beyond human causation. Now, I need you to pay real good attention because I'm about to get real Methodist here. Notice that Luke does not tell us the origins of this evil or this suffering or this chaos. Luke actually does not ever originate evil in God. None of this comes about because God sent a storm. None of this comes about because God threatens their life. The evil here is not finding its origins in God. And this is an important point because Luke's audience, being pagan polytheists in their former lives, would have assumed, given that the gods are tied to nature and given that the gods are morally sketchy, that all evil originates in the gods. And so Luke is very much avoiding any language that might make it seem like God is responsible for this evil or this chaos or this suffering or this threat. Luke avoids it. But somehow, this view of God as God being the originator of all evil has infiltrated Christian thinking in our day. And we could have a theological, philosophical discussion about um, uh, other denominations. I don't want to focus on other denominations. That's not my goal here. But there are other denominations that would absolutely teach that evil exists by the will of God, by the decision of God, by the power of God, that that is the reason evil exists. 
Methodists do not believe that. However, my criticism today is actually for us as Methodists that somehow we have also had these assumptions worked into our congregations and into our pulpits. Let me give you some examples of the sinister, slippery ways it gets in. I'm sure you've heard these, but I wonder if you've thought about them. In the face of suffering, when Christians respond by saying, everything happens for a reason. Okay, what reason? Who came up with that reason? What people are really saying is that there must be a reason for the suffering and because there's a reason and we know that God gives meaning to life, God is ultimately the source behind this evil. When we have little cliches like that, what we have to do is start asking questions about what do they actually mean? Or when we say, uh, God has a will in this. Friends, you don't know that. Unless you're a part of a denomination that believes that God literally has a will in everything, including every breath that you breathe, which is not the United Methodist Church, then you don't know that God has a will in everything. And so I think what we do is we say these things because they make us feel better. It like gives us some kind of answer in the face of suffering. But the problem is it lays the suffering at the feet of God. Or can I give you another example, one that I am uh, only most recently familiar with, though I suspect that it probably has a, a much longer history than my awareness of it, is when in the face of suffering, somebody will say something like, God gives the hardest test to the strongest warriors. First of all, that's not how it works. Human suffering is universal whether you're a strong warrior or a peon. It's universal. And also just the idea that God gives you a test. You don't know that. But it assumes that the suffering that is happening in your life is, originates in God. But those sayings... Placing the origins of evil at the feet of God, in the end, make God morally no different than Scylla or Charybdis. Or if I can say it in a more Christian fashion, those sayings make God morally no different than the devil. Jesus never seems to be all that interested in explaining the origins of evil or why things happen. Luke goes so far out of his way to disconnect Jesus or God from this evil that he literally has Jesus sleeping in the boat. You cannot get more passive than that. Jesus is napping while the boat is sinking. Now, to me, that creates all kinds of other theological conflicts, but I would rather deal with those than a God who is morally no different than the devil. So Luke, Jesus never has 
an answer or even tries to solve why evil exists to begin with. And most of the Bible, most of it, I think is completely uninterested in the question. So uninterested that the one book that is explicitly about it is Job. And at the end, you don't really get a straight answer from Job or God either. It's like 35, 39 chapters of a long stinking poem that you don't get the answer from. I really feel like Job could have lot, been a lot more succinct and just been like, I'm going to write a poem about how I don't know why bad things happen. And make it like 10 verses. <laughs> it didn't have to be 40 chapters. But we do know that it seems like Luke is intentionally avoiding any imagery that might connect Jesus to the storm in some kind of causal way. Rather, what we have is that Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves just as he later rebukes demonic spirits and forces. In other words, what we have here is God resisting evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, whether on land or on sea. And this is what we have to understand. This means that our God intends to not only liberate us individually, but God intends to liberate all creation from the forces of chaos and evil and suffering. Because we see the Bible through Western individualistic eyes, we assume that salvation is primarily about us. About me and you as individuals going to heaven or something after we die. And the whole point of this story is that there is evil that is deeper than individual human decision. There is evil that is bigger than just individual human will. And God cannot just correct the evil that is in me, that God is in the work of correcting evil that is all throughout creation, including in the systems of evil. I know you all probably, after, for some of you, almost 10 years now of listening to me preach, you, you, you might, every time I bring up racism, Roll your eyes. He's talking about racism again. Or homophobia. The reason we have to talk about those things as Christians, the reason we have to talk about them is because there is some evil in this world that is bigger than just my individual like or dislike of people of color or like or dislike of queer folks. There is evil that is bigger than my individual bigotries. There are systems of evil at work in the world, and the Christian God is liberating all creation, not only from me, but from those systems. And our job, is to quite literally stake our lives on that claim that God is liberating all of creation. To stake our lives and our jobs and our well-being on that claim. Which brings me then to the role of faith 
in a world stuck between Skyla and Charybdis. In the Odyssey, Odysseus has to stake his life on Circe's wisdom to survive. He cannot merely say, I recognize she's a god and I believe in her and we're good, but I'm going to do my own thing. He literally has to stake his life, a willingness to stake his life and to rearrange his life and to make certain decisions around the words of this Greek goddess of witchcraft and mischief whose character was unpredictable. The only expression of faith here that makes sense in the story is not merely that he intellectually agrees with you, with her. The expression of faith is that he does what her wisdom says he should do. When the disciples wake Jesus up because they feel like they're about to drown, he asks, where is your faith? And I'm going to admit, I probably spent more time trying to understand what this question was and what it was supposed to mean. Why does Jesus seem to be getting testy with them? Because every one of us in that same boat would have been like, what do you mean? Where is our faith, dude? You were sleeping in the boat. We were waking you up so you didn't drown. So like, I spent way too much time trying to make sense of this. But here's the only way I figured out how to make sense of this. Why does he ask them, where is your faith? Unlike Cersei, who has a reputation for mischief, Jesus' reputation throughout Luke is a reputation of life and goodness and healing and liberation and resurrection. The disciples had seen him heal a man from miles away. They'd seen a paralyzed man get up and walk already. They'd seen a man raised from the dead and given back to his mother. And now, when they are navigating their own Skyla and Charybdis, they seem to have forgotten everything that they've seen. Which sounds pretty familiar. It's about how it works in my life. And so in asking them about their faith, Jesus, I do not think Jesus is like some prosperity gospel preachers do. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, you know, if you just believed hard enough, there would have never been a storm to begin with. I don't think Jesus is like some prosperity gospel preachers do, saying that, you know, if you just believed hard enough, then, 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 then you could have calmed the storm yourself. You have the power within you to do it. They will. Later, in Luke 9, they will have the power to do it, but they don't right now. I think the way to make sense of this story and this question is to go back to the parable of the sower from two weeks ago. It was two weeks ago for us. It's just a few verses for Luke. He intends for us to still have the parable of the sower in mind when we read this story about the calming of the storm. Because you will remember, in the parable of the sower, there is a particular kind of seed that sprouts up and it's excited to grow, and then it is choked out at the first sign of distress. 
This lived parable is telling the male disciples in particular, when things are easy, you're really excited to believe. But when they get distressing, your faith starts to choke out. But here's the good news. Remember, the whole point of the parable of the sower was that bad soil can become good soil by hearing God's word and obeying God's will. The whole point was never that you were always stuck exactly where you are, that bad soil is always bad soil. Rather, what this then implies is that faith is not something that you either have A or don't have Z. Faith is not something you achieve and you never lose or that you don't have and you never can have. The whole point is that you don't get to judge your own faith by an individual moment. That every one of us as a disciple of Jesus is constantly in process. And that there are times when it seems like even Jesus might be like, Ben, I thought we were beyond this, but we're not. And there are other times when Noah might say, I thought I was beyond this. And God's like, no, I knew you weren't. We are in a constant state of process. Faith is a process. It always, from the very last breath we ever breathe, it has a growing edge. Theologian Catherine Keller says it this way. She says, faith is not settled belief, but is a living process. It is the very edge and opening of a life in process. To live is to step with trust into the next moment into the unpredictable. Jesus understands that the disciples' faith is a faith in process and the Gospels depict his endless, indefatigable patience with them. And therefore, the wisdom is his endless patience with us. I mean, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? To just like own a yacht and be with Jesus on a yacht in a glassy sea somewhere. But that's not real life. And that's not where the Christian life is lived. It would be really nice to be on a Caribbean cruise with Jesus. It would be amazing. But that's not where the Christian life is lived. I don't know what you signed up for when you got baptized, but it wasn't a Caribbean cruise with Jesus. It was resisting evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, whether on land or on sea. The Christian life is lived between Skyla and Charybdis. Kierkegaard was right. He said, sitting calmly on a ship in fair weather is not a metaphor for having faith. But when the ship has sprung a leak, keeping the ship afloat by enthusiastically pumping and not seeking harbor, 
That is the metaphor for having faith. Why does he say not seeking harbor? Because he says essentially for faith there is no harbor. The whole nature of faith is that you stake your life by being out on the open seas with Jesus. That's it. You're not even sure for Kierkegaard until, until you go into the next life. You're not even sure you're right. Because it is not the calm sea, but the storm that provokes the awe and the faith in the disciples and causes them to ask, who is this man? He gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples' fear and awe shift from the storm to the one who created the sea. But who is this one? Who is this one? I'll tell you who he's not. Not a lifeguard. Lifeguard would not be sleeping on that boat. He's not a lighthouse. Sentimental and nostalgic as that image might be.